morning, St. Barnabas. It's a time we come to reading of our Lord's Word. Taken on the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. I begin reading from verse 1 to verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here ends the reading of the Lord's word. Good. Well, Mariano, thank you very much indeed, and good morning, everyone. Just one or two notices before we start. You may have noticed there are a couple of tall tables over here on the right. Uh, they're purposefully placed there uh, to encourage conversation, that rare thing, after the service. So grab your cup of coffee, come and talk to one another, find out what's been going on in each other's lives. Sebastian's had a marvellous week at Home Affairs. You could ask him about that. Uh, Joseph has moved house, you could ask him about that, and the ladies had a marvellous tea together yesterday morning, you could ask them about that. So that's why those tables are there, no rushing off into the car park to ring your girlfriend on your cell phone, there's the place to be. (laughs) And then the second thing is that um, we started this morning having a prayer meeting before the service in the kitchen of all places. We meet uh, every Sunday morning from now on at 9 o'clock. Uh, you can join at any part, any point and leave whenever you want to. We had a very special time this morning. An elder will always be leading that, and I do encourage you to, to attend. So just through that door there, any time between 9 and 9.15. And then thirdly and lastly, next Sunday evening at 6 o'clock, we have our members meeting, and uh, that's for members and associate members online over Zoom at 6 p.m., I'll be sending out an agenda later on today. Good, well that's all of the notices. I do hope you have your Bibles open uh, at Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to meet with us in his word. Heavenly Father, again we do thank you and praise you for the enormous privilege of an open Bible. Help us not to squander it or take it for granted. 
And so in the next few minutes we pray that what we know not you will teach us, that what we have not you will give us, and what we are not you will make us. And we ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. Well, Jeremy uh, Bentham was uh, an influential philosopher and social reformer. And uh, after a very long and distinguished career, he died in 1832 at the age of 84. And uh, let's just have his photograph up on the screen, if we may, Sebastian. Because, you see, before he died, he gave (coughs) orders that his entire estate should be given to the University College Hospital in London on one rather strange condition. The condition was that after his death, his body should be preserved and placed in attendance at all of the hospital's annual board meetings. So there he is. Uh, His wishes were respected for 92 years. For some reason, they then stopped for a while. And after a long interval in 2013, they resumed the tradition again. So still today, every year, At the annual meeting, the body of Jeremy Bentham is wheeled up to the boardroom table and the chairman says, Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. (laughs) It's a rather bizarre reflection of his atheist philosophy. During the meetings, Jeremy Bentham will never say anything. He'll never vote because he's been dead for 190 years. Dead people don't generally vote in board meetings. In fact, dead people don't do anything. Now that's the picture, we can take the photo off the screen, that's the picture that Paul is painting for us in our passage this morning. Uh, It's a picture of the spiritual condition of all people who do not know Christ. The Apostle says they are dead, and he says it twice, once in verse 1, and then again in verse 5. And when Paul says anything more than once, we know it's important, and so we're going to be spending most of our time this morning trying to understand what he means by that, and what God has done about it. But let's begin by getting our bearings. Um, Our purpose in this series, in the book of Ephesians, is to answer the question, who do you think you are? It's a question, isn't it, that everyone asks themselves at some time or other, and many people seem to go all the way through their lives without ever finding a satisfactory answer. Some of us look for an answer in the way that other people see us. Uh, So, in my own case at school, uh, my particular sport was rowing, and because I was reasonably good at it, uh, the masters always used to refer to me as the oarsman. And I guess perhaps because there were 600 boys in the school, it was an easy way for them to point me out, remember remember me, uh, identify me. At the time, I quite enjoyed it. It made me feel really rather special which was fine until I got to my early 20s 
uh, when I discovered that there were other oarsmen out there who were much bigger and better than me. Suddenly, it wasn't such a special identity marker after all, and I had to look around for another one. Maybe some of you have had an experience rather like that. At any rate, this question, who do you think you are, is actually one of the most important questions in life, isn't it? And the good news for the Christian is that unlike anybody else, we don't actually have to spend years searching for the answer because the Bible gives it to us. It's right there, isn't it, in our passage this morning in verse 10. Have a look at it. And we all see verse 10 in our Bible. In verse 10, Paul says, we are God's workmanship. Now, if you're a Christian, you are God's workmanship. That's who you are. Now, how that happened and what it means for our lives now is the subject of this magnificent passage. One of the most famous passages, surely, in the whole of the Bible, because it summarizes so clearly what God does when he makes someone a Christian. Now, Paul describes it as a transformation in three distinct phases, and we'll use those phases as our outline this morning. Phase number one, our helpless bondage. That's verses one to three. Our helpless bondage. Phase number two, God's powerful liberation. And that's in verses four to seven. And then phase number three, God's gracious purpose. Verses eight to ten. So let's start with phase one, our helpless bondage, where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, verses one to three. Now, in these verses, Paul is describing the condition of every human being who doesn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you'll notice he says that they are following certain things. And these things define who they are. Now, I should say it's really important to understand that the word followed in verse 2 and following in verse 3 is a bad translation because it makes it sound like these people have made a free choice. But the word in the original means something quite different. The word translated followed means to be mastered by or to be under the control of. So the picture that Paul is giving us is that the unbeliever is in fact enslaved to these things. He's got no choice in the matter. So just like uh, Israel in Egypt, it's a picture of helpless captivity. So what then are these powerful forces that are holding every unbeliever in captivity? Well, first, in verse 2, he is enslaved to the ways of the world. Now, that's a way of talking about the, the patterns of thought and the lifestyle that come not from the God who made us, but from the world that has rejected God 
and decided it can get on perfectly well without him. What does that look like? What are the ways of the world? Well, in uh, questions of morality, the world's position is, if it feels right, it can't be wrong. If you want to do something, then as long as it's not going to actually hurt another person, then just go ahead and do it. It's your right to choose, and no one has the right to tell you any different. Then when, it, uh, when the world thinks about prosperity, the attitude is, well, there is actually lasting fulfillment in wealth. It really can make you happy. And by all means, give a little bit to those in need if you want to, but make sure you keep as much as possible for yourself. You are worth it. And then in spirituality, the world has decreed, well, God is an optional lifestyle choice. The Bible's a pretty useful book, but it's not the authoritative word of God. There are other spiritual books out there, so take what's helpful for you and leave the rest. God is really terribly relaxed about these sorts of things. Now, those are some of the ideas that dominate the unbeliever's worldview. He might go to church, but while he may say some very religious things on Sunday, during the week, the ways of the world control his thoughts, his behavior, and his lifestyle. So that's the first area of slavery. Second, in verse 2, the unbeliever is enslaved to the devil. You'll notice there, Paul describes him as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And because the devil is a ruler, that means that he wields a considerable amount of power. Now, how does he use it? That's the question. Well, keep one finger in Ephesians 2 and turn a few pages back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Two Corinthians chapter four and verse four, where the apostle tells us how the devil exercises his authority over men and women today. Verse four: the God of this age, that is the devil, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, my dear friends, if that is not a picture of slavery, I don't know what is. A number of years ago, I used to give Bible talks every week to businessmen down in the CBD in town. And there were a number of occasions when uh, one of those men would come and ask me after the talk, that asked me a question, and uh, I would find myself trying to explain the gospel. In many, many cases, it soon became clear they hadn't got the slightest idea what I was talking about. And you know, when I looked back on some of those conversations afterwards, I honestly think I couldn't have explained the gospel any more clearly, but they couldn't understand it. They might have been at the top of their profession and absolutely brilliant at what they were doing. Many of them were. But where the gospel was concerned, 
their thinking was utterly confused. And verse 4 explains why. Well, come back to Ephesians and notice the third area of slavery because the unbeliever, it says, is enslaved to the flesh. Now, that's not talking about your skin. It's talking about the sinful nature. Verse 3, Ephesians 2, verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Now that tells us, doesn't it, that the unbeliever is following, in other words, he's under the control of the desires and thoughts of his sinful nature. What Paul is saying there is that all of us are by nature profoundly self-centered. Now I think most of us want to reject that idea. But that's only, you see, because we're blind to what we're actually really like. Uh, In the middle of the last century, uh, a man called A.W. Tozer wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's a great book. And in that book, he exposed the, the spiritual blindness of his own generation. And uh, concerning this matter of our self-centeredness, this is what he said. I hope Seb will put it up on the screen. He said this, quote, Because man is born a rebel, he's unaware that he is one. His constant assertion of self, as far as he thinks of it at all, appears to him a perfectly normal thing. He's willing to share himself, sometimes even to sacrifice himself for a desired end but never to dethrone himself. No matter how far down the scale of social acceptance he may slide, he is still, in his own eyes, a king on a throne. And no one, not even God, can take that throne from him. Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being created to worship before the throne of God, sits on the throne of his own selfhood and from that elevated position declares, I am. So those are the three powers that hold every unbeliever in captivity. It's the world, flesh and the devil. Now, the effect of that captivity is not simply captivity. It's actually something far worse. Paul describes the effect. It's there in verse 1. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins and so on. So the effect of that bondage, friends, is death. Now, why? Why death? Well, the point of the image of death is that like Jeremy Bentham, dead people can't do anything for themselves. So when it comes to salvation, they're in a state of complete helplessness. So just to illustrate the point, think for a moment of the uh, story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. You don't need to turn to it. I'm sure you know the story pretty well. But you remember that Lazarus fell ill and he died... 
And uh, before Jesus could get to him, in fact, he was put in the tomb. When Jesus did arrive, he'd already been in the tomb four days. Now imagine for a moment if you had been there on that terrific day when Jesus arrived and approached the tomb. Let me ask you this question. Would you have called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, please will you get up now? Jesus is here. He can help you. Lazarus, come on now. Now, All you need to do is reach out to him and he will save you. You take the first step and Jesus will do the rest. Would you have said that? No. If you had, I tell you, the people in white coats would have come along and taken you away. Now, everything depended that day, didn't it, on the power of Jesus. And by describing the unbeliever as dead... Paul is saying that the unbeliever is exactly like Lazarus in the tomb, completely helpless to save himself. And unless God intervenes, there's actually worse to come, because at the end of verse 3, talking about himself before he was converted, Paul says, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now, a great deal of contemporary Christianity hesitates to speak about the wrath of God. It's bad for business, and uh, churches are quite frankly frightened that people will simply laugh. But the Bible takes the wrath of God with the utmost seriousness. More than 600 passages in Scripture address the subject directly, And Jesus gave countless warnings about it. And here, you see, Paul's point is that there is only one way for anyone to escape the wrath of God, and that is for Christ to stand in our place. But, of course, the unbeliever can't see it, can he? Because he's dead. So there has to be a miracle. And praise God there is. So, phase two in our transformation is God's powerful liberation. Verses four to seven. We've seen our helpless bondage. We're now going to think about God's powerful liberation. Now, over the last few months, we've we've all had to get used to the lights being turned off at short notice with no warning. The power's been cut. The power supply is unstable. It's unreliable, especially in winter. But if you were with us last week, you'll remember that we said that where spiritual power is concerned, there is never any load shedding. Paul, you remember, was praying that Christians might wake up to the the vast and totally reliable power supply that is available to us through Christ. That's chapter 1, verse 19. But because that's such a difficult concept to grasp, Paul shows us here that becoming a Christian is itself an experience of God's power. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you have already had a taste of it. How do we get there? 
Well, we've just seen that every human being can do absolutely nothing to save themselves from spiritual death and the wrath to come. It's a hopeless situation. Now come with me to verse 4. Verse 4, But because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now, what I want you to notice is that when God makes someone a Christian, he uses his incomparably great power to reverse every aspect of the condition he's just described in verses 1 to 3. The condition we were in as unbelievers. Follow me closely here. First, God calls us out of our own spiritual tomb. Remember in verse 1, Paul started out by saying that we were dead. But just as God raised Christ from the dead by his mighty power, so in making us Christians, God made us alive with Christ. How did he do it? Well, cast your mind back to Lazarus. Although Lazarus was dead, and therefore deaf, Lazarus, interestingly, responded to the word of Christ. Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And he did. Christ made him alive. So Lazarus came out of the tomb, and shortly afterwards Jesus sat down and enjoyed a meal with him. Now it is exactly the same with us. What Christ did for Lazarus physically, through his word and by the power of the Spirit, he does for us spiritually. So if you're a Christian, it means that there was a time when you heard the Lord calling to you, come out. And the same power that enabled you to hear the command also gave you the ability to respond. And you emerged from your spiritual tomb to a new life with completely new possibilities. Second, in making a Christian, God liberates us from bondage, from slavery, from captivity. Look at verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now that is a very remarkable statement. Because, of course, physically we're still on planet Earth, aren't we? So what does Paul mean when he said that the Christian has been raised up with Christ in the heavenly realms? Well, back in verses 1 to 3, Paul said that we were slaves to the world, the flesh, and the devil. But in saying that God raised us up with Christ to the heavenly realms, Paul is reminding us that we've been raised up into a new kingdom with a new master. And of course, I'm sure I don't need to tell you, there are no slaves in heaven. So if that's where we are, it must be, mustn't it, as free men and women. 
our time of slavery is over. That doesn't mean we're always going to live sinless lives perfectly. After all, we might have been slaves for years. We probably got very used to the lifestyle. But it does mean that we have a new power we didn't have before to say no to sin. But there's something interesting here. I think there may be something more in the message here. Because to be seated with Christ is also to be in the place of special intimacy and revelation. Do you remember that marvellous account of the Last Supper in the Gospel of John? I think it might be worth turning to it. Keep a finger again in Ephesians. Flick back to John chapter 14. Gospel of John, chapter 14, the account of the Last Supper. So in verse 23, uh, John says that he, uh, the Apostle John, was reclining next to Jesus and uh, talking about himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was the way John refers to himself in John's Gospel. John says, verse 23, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to Jesus. During the meal, Jesus said that one of the twelve would betray him. And you remember that the Apostle Peter got terribly upset about that, quite rightly so. And he asked John to ask Jesus which disciple he was talking about. Now look at verse 25. Again, speaking about himself, John says, leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot. Now, notice, will you, that John was seated next to Jesus, and he was the one who received that revelation. Now, keep that in your mind. Come back now to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. Ephesians 2, verse 6, Paul says, And God raised us up with Christ and did what? Seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Why? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You see, friends, to be a Christian is to be seated with Christ who is at the right hand of God in the place of intimacy and revelation. It is the place where God opens up his heart, showing us his purpose for our lives and also the resources that he uses to sustain us as his children. And that's what we're going to be thinking about when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together in a few minutes' time. And then the the third aspect of God's work in the making of a Christian is that instead of being objects of his wrath, 
He's made us objects of his love and his mercy and his grace. And Paul is especially concerned that we should realize that it is by grace that we've been saved. Again, he says it twice. Once in verse 5 and again in verse 8. What does he mean by that? What's he trying to say to us? Well, in one of his books, uh, C.S. Lewis says that on one occasion, uh, a seeker came up to him and asked if he could put his finger on the main difference between Christianity and all the other religions of the world. And C.S. Lewis replied, well, it's very simple. It's the difference between do and done. What he meant by that was that in every other religion, there is a ladder with God at the top and man at the bottom. And man is always expected to do certain things to make his way up the ladder to God. It might be uh, adhering to the five pillars of Islam or following the eightfold path of enlightenment uh, or it might be living a good life. Could even be going to church. Whatever it is, in every case, the, the worshipper is supposed to work his way up the ladder to God. But dear friends, Christianity is totally different, quite different. Christianity says that God has come down the ladder to you and I in the person of Jesus to put us right with God by his life and death and resurrection. Now that is what Paul means when he talks about grace. And all that we have to do is accept the salvation that Jesus has accomplished for us as a free gift. Now the puzzle, of course, is why people won't accept the gift. I think one of the reasons, it's only one of them, but I think one of the reasons is that people are rather alarmed at the idea of being faced with the decision today. Um, I mean, it's one thing to be faced with the decision to receive the gift when I stand on the threshold of eternity in the intensive care unit. And if the gospel were that I could live as I please right up until that moment, then accept the gift, everyone would go for it. I tell you that straight off the bat. But that isn't the gospel. It's not. The gospel is that God has stretched out into eternity and he's purchased the gift of eternal life through Jesus and he's brought it into the here and now and he holds it out to us this morning as a free gift. And he says, won't you take it? Maybe there's somebody here this morning and you're thinking, well, I don't think God would ever accept me. I've been too bad. I've done too many terrible things. Well, if that is you, can I invite you to look at every other person in this building this morning, starting with me, and uh, let the grace that God has shown to us make you bold to ask God for the forgiveness this morning that is in Jesus so that you can receive salvation as a free gift. Let him set you free 
for a life with completely new possibilities. And that life, which is phase three in our transformation, is outlined for us in verses 8 to 10. And I've called this God's gracious purpose. God's gracious purpose. Now, we began this morning by thinking about the question that is also the title of our series. Who do you think you are? One of those philosophical questions that disturb everybody until they find a satisfying answer. And we said at the beginning that one of the joys of being a Christian is that immediately we're converted, we're delivered from all of that uncertainty. Because God tells us quite clearly who we are and what our lives are for. It's one of the clearest and simplest descriptions in all of Scripture. There it is in verse 10. Paul says, verse 10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, stay with me here. To, to the question, who am I? Every Christian answers confidently, I am God's workmanship. And in the original, the first meaning of that word workmanship is actually creation. And of course that's true. Yes, in one sense, God has created every human being, he has. But only the Christian can say, God has created me not once, but twice. He created me at birth, and then he made me a new creation when he made me alive with Christ. Now here's something lovely. It's good to know that the word workmanship can also be translated masterpiece or work of art. This is surely one of the most amazing descriptions of the believer in the entire Bible. Everything that God has done to liberate us from bondage and to bring us into the kingdom of Jesus and seat us in the place of intimacy at his right hand where he's teaching us and revealing his heart to us, all of that is making us into God's priceless work of art. Is that not an amazing thought? Michelangelo, the famous artist and sculptor who lived in the 16th century, um, one day there he was, he was chipping away at a, a sort of shapeless block of stone in his workshop. And someone came in and he said, Michelangelo, what are you doing with that piece of rock? And he replied, I'm liberating an angel from this stone. Now that is what God is doing with us. We are in the hands of the master sculptor who created the entire universe out of nothing and who has never yet thrown away a rock on which he started to work. He's never done that. And his tools, the tools he works with, are Jesus Christ, the Spirit, his Word, the faithful preaching of that Word, 
God might use a great saint, a great Christian, to carve his impression on us. And at other times, he might actually use difficult people and difficult circumstances. Depends what we need. But either way, God will finish what he started. And what are we to do? What is to be our focus now if we're Christian people? Well, verse 10 says that we are to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, a number of those works are described in the second half of the book, in chapters 4 to 6, which we're going to get to in November, I guess. But here, the idea, quite simply, is that everything we do, in everything we do, you and I are called to reflect the character of God, who's the God who saved us. That's what we're called to do. And the reason we can do this is because he's liberated us from captivity so that now we can do what before was a sheer impossibility, namely to love one another as God has loved us. So that's something to think about, isn't it, and to pray about this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your infinite mercy and grace that reached down to us when we were dead and made us alive with Christ. We thank you that we don't have to go looking for our identity because you've told us who we are. We are your workmanship, your masterpieces, your priceless works of art. Lord, please help everyone here this morning to see how precious we are to you. And then won't you help us to love one another as you have loved us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.